uh, I'm sure people out there who, you know, first learning about MMT, you're like, well, that's kind of weird. I, that can't be right. And then you sort of roll it over in your head over and over and you begin to realize, no, that makes a lot more sense. And so that's how I kind of came around to, to this view that I now feel embarrassed to tell my students about is that the Fed is doing nothing but harm. And one more thing, uh, and I'll shut up on this. As you were pointing out too, uh, we have this sort of knee-jerk response to situations like now where there's a, a relative labor shortage. Oh no, let's stop it. I, I seem to recall both candidates for president talking about the disappearance of the middle class. Hmm. Well, that's how we get them back, you idiots. We allow the wages to go up, all right? Uh, inflation caused by, and this is where we go back to the Emancipation Proclamation, inflation caused by social justice is okay. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's the first in a six-part series with Texas Christian University economics professor and cowboy economist, John Harvey. The first three parts are hosted by me, the final three by MMT researcher, Texas lawyer, and my previous guest, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan and John talk about how MMT can apply to nations outside the U.S., using Russia as an example. They also talk about some of the core theoretical and ideological differences between MMTers and mainstream economists, focusing on a recent critique of MMT by Drew Metz and Feister. You can hear my own interview with Jonathan in episodes 106 and 107. Regarding parts 1 to 3, John and I talk about his chapter in the upcoming book called Modern Monetary Theory, Key Insights Leading Thinkers. The book will be published by the UK-based Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. It's edited by L. Randall Ray and GIMS and is scheduled for a January 2023 release. John is one of 15 authors. His chapter is titled Modern Monetary Theory, the UK, and Pound Sterling. He was asked to write this chapter for two major reasons. First because there's not enough MMT-specific analysis on exchange rate determination, and second, to address the reality of the so-called sterling crisis in the United Kingdom. John and I don't specifically discuss the latter topic, but it is addressed in the paper. John's chapter addresses the following criticism of MMT, and this is a quote from the chapter. MMT-inspired policies will cause high rates of price inflation, which will in turn lower the international value of a domestic currency, perhaps catastrophically. Importantly, the critique is based on the following three assumptions. 
Number one, the false idea that we are already or soon will be at full employment. Number two, a fantastical theory of exchange rate determination. And number three, a terrible and lazy mischaracterization of MMT. John and I spend most of our time discussing the reality of these three assumptions. Surprisingly, however, the main insight I take from this conversation is a much clearer understanding of inflation in general. I'll describe that insight in the introduction to part two. The heart of our conversation is on the above three assumptions, but we start and end with mostly unrelated subjects. Part one begins with John describing his experience as chair of the economics department at TCU. He discusses the Russian-Ukrainian conflict only as it relates to exchange rate determination, and he answers a question from an activist MMT patron regarding his opinion of our possibility to experience a recession. At the end of part three, we talk about how for most of those that most of us directly interact with, mainstream economic theory is not in fact a big conspiracy. We end by discussing the good and bad of math in economics. Thanks to the recommendation of a patron, with every episode of Activist MMT as of several months ago, you can pinpoint any part of this interview by referring to the full list of audio chapters, which can be found at the bottom of the show notes. So for example, if you wanted to skip over this introduction and go right to the beginning of the interview proper, now you can know exactly what timestamp to go to. Don't worry, I won't mind. And now on to my conversation with John Harvey. Enjoy. Um, so, so you told me that you know, the room that you teach from is your attic. So in my head, it was you know, on top of your house. Oh yeah, yeah, so no. Uh, our, our attic is extremely. Um, I don't know how to describe it. It's like three attics because the second floor is kind of built into the attic. So there's a little triangle attic at the very top of the house, and then two triangle attics along the side of the second floor. Okay. So you can't really get there, uh, which okay. was unfortunate several years ago. We certainly want this on tape when we had a rat, a rat infestation that took me about 12 months to fight off. Oh, no. I replaced all the um, insulation and uh, oh, it was miserable. But uh, finally, we got him. We got him out. Apparently, having bird food right next to the house is a tremendous attraction to rats. So really? Oh, yeah. interesting. OK. So Melanie was very sad. We just <laughs> yeah. very sad about what? Oh, about no more bird seed. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> um, my, we, we, I just bought a house in uh, my first house in uh, last summer, and my boys are outside miserable right now. I, I had to wake them up early. It's going to be ninety-eight <laughs> later, so they have to mow our gigantic lawn. So they're, oh they're, no, they're coming up with new curses to. <laughs> so, Where do you live? What state? Um, in New Jersey, right next to Philadelphia. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's why you're going. The Levy thing is not that far away for you. It's three and a half hour drive. Not a big okay, deal. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's like all, you know, there's only a handful of like truly, you know, I, I assume you know about Torrens, which so that's, that's, you know, that's very exciting. That's accessible to anybody. But um, what do you call it? The, there's a dog or something? Squeak toys? I don't know. I hear squeak uh, toys. Oh, 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 yeah, uh, yes. Cobble, uh, come. Cobble, come. Comes through jetzt. I had to do German with him to get him to follow orders. <laughs> Setzen Sie. 
Okay, I, I took the toy that still has a squeaker in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, play with the other toys. See, uh, he, he got into a very bad habit, a very smart habit. During COVID, he learned that if I was on Zoom or sitting in front of my computer talking, I don't want to be disturbed, so I will give him a T-R-E-A-T. <laughs> so that's why he's in here right now rather than lying on the bed with Melanie, which is where he would normally be since he had somewhere warm to sleep. Okay. Um, but but uh, uh, yeah, so he found a squeaky toy. But he doesn't know how to spell, so that's good. No, he does not yet. <laughs> you know, we used to speak French to each other when the girls were when the girls were old enough to speak English, but uh, you know, to, then Meg went and majored in French, so we no longer had a tool to speak over the top of our children. But so far, the dog hasn't figured anything out. So that's <laughs> okay. really good. Yeah. Okay. Um. Uh. All right. Um. Well, I guess let's just get started. Uh, all right. Okay. I've got. Uh, my, uh, your questions here with my notes and I got my paper here, so I'm all set. Cool. All right. John, it is a pleasure to talk with you again. And uh, this is our third interview. So you spent your past, what, six months, something? Oh, as chair? Yeah. So you spent- Two years. Two, two years. Two years. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. As economics been. chairperson, right? The yes, chairperson yes. of the economics department. So, so how? welcome back. Thank you. Uh, um, Almost. Apparently, I have 10 more days officially. But uh, yeah, school's out, so there's not too much going on right now. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm curious briefly of the of the experience of, of you know. Well, um, you know, first of all, it's my second time as chair. The first time was back in 2004 when the okay, – let me back up here and tell the listeners that being department chair is not a promotion. <laughs> when you tell <laughs> people – you tell oh, I'm department chair and they don't work at a university, like, oh, good for you. When they do work at a university, they say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, um, mm -hmm. because you get to do less of the two things that people generally enjoy most, and that's teaching and research. And so and instead, you get to do things like deal with great appeals and you know, put the schedule together and, and, and stuff like that, that you don't really need a Ph.D. to do, but somebody needs to do it. So, you know, rather than hire another you know, uh, administrative person, um, and I got to decide on the raises, too. I hate that part. So anyway, the first time was 2004 when our department had only had two different chairs for the previous 27 years. And I thought, yay, I'll never have to be chair. And then the, the, the chair at the time said, John, will you please take over for me? I'm like, oh, God, I, I was I was working on my book on exchange rates at the time. And I said, can I have another year mm. to finish the book? Um, and the book never got finished the way I wanted to because of that, because I had to hurry and get and get it done. So. Anyway, that, that was – and then at the end of the third year, the, the terms are three years. At the end of the third year, nobody else would volunteer. And I thought, I don't want to – nobody wants to do this. It doesn't make you unique for not wanting to do it because I didn't either. But I did it because we had to be done. Anyway, mm -hmm. we had a new chair, a dean coming in, and I didn't want our department to be embarrassed by that, uh, by, oh, econ, that's the department without a department chair. Mm -hmm. So I did a miserable fourth year. All right, so mm -hmm. really, really, really didn't want to do – I didn't – I knew two years in, yeah, I can't do this much longer. I'm going to do one term, which is three years, and then you know, I can do another term later if you want. This time, however, I actually volunteered on purpose. <laughs> okay. So this one was my idea. And um, How do you volunteer by accident? Yeah, well, when somebody calls you up and says, "Hey, will you volunteer?" I, so I guess it's kind of like those movies where you see, you know, the the, the sergeant says, "I need three volunteers, you, you, and you." <laughs> and so, you know, that's kind of what happened the first time. But but this time, I really did. Uh, I really did intend to. Part of it was because the the university has undertaken what appears to be an honest to goodness 
diversity, equity, and inclusion effort, not just on paper, but putting money behind it and so forth. And I wanted to be part of that. And, so, and I wanted to make sure that economics, which is a terrible reputation uh, and well-deserved, not just theoretically, but in terms of you know, our, our economists themselves, of um, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I want to make sure that we were on the front lines you know, as a sort of unique situation, unlike the way it is at most universities. Because usually, you know, oh, sociology gets involved, English gets involved, and econ's like, isn't that nice? Um, so I, you know, I, I, and our new dean, she was very much behind all that. So I, I actually, I don't regret being chair. Um, and it was, a, it was a lot of stress. And it's been so long since I've done a podcast because I had too much other crap to do. And I haven't written anything. Well, I have now because I've had a chance to do something. But, but for a long time, I hadn't even touched any research. And I'm working on a book right now on, on business cycles, which I'm really excited about and want to get done. And so I was getting depressed about that. So, uh, you know, I don't regret having been chair. I did get us involved in the DEI you know, movement on campus, uh, something I did separate from being chair. But nevertheless, something I was really excited about was uh, a colleague of mine, Don Elliott, who went to the new school, by the way. Hmm. Um, she and I uh, co-taught last semester our university's first ever economics of, of uh, race, gender, and ethnicity. Hmm. So, you know, I, I got some things accomplished I wanted to get accomplished. So th- there was some, there was, it wasn't like somebody said, will you be chair? It was like, oh, there's some things I want to accomplish. Uh, the one thing I didn't get done because of COVID was that I felt like our department was, was starting to, um, uh, you know, devolve into little cliques here and there. And I wanted more social events. Let's get back together and talking to each other because, you know, the, all, pretty much all the new, all the younger faculty are all neoclassicals. And so, you know, we, we didn't chat with each other as much. So anyway, I, th- that one didn't get done, but, but otherwise everything else did. So uh, I never, ever going to do it again. <laughs> that was six years altogether. And the sort of unwritten rule is that nobody can ever ask you again after that. Mm. But I don't regret having done it this time. I, I think we got I, I got out of it where I wanted. And the person who co-taught that class with me from the new school, Don Elliott, she's the next chair. Hmm. Uh, and she was our former college diversity advocate. So I'm really excited that we have somebody in that position that's not going to like sort of stop the, the things that I was trying to get going and indeed uh, is very much committed to continuing. Them. That's great. Um, two minor follow-ups regarding that. One is yeah. uh, you said currency capital flows and crises was somehow – like impacted by yes. your previous, like how, just, you know, uh, what wish do, what do you wish was there that wasn't because of your previous chairmanship? Um, uh, interestingly enough, given the topic of today, or one of the topics today, uh, I, I wish I'd been able to work on the models more uh, mm. and, and develop them more, but I had to hurry up and get done. Mm. So it's not bad. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people who are doing exchange rate stuff in post Keynesian econ today, you know, said that was the first book because it was. I, that, by the way, all those of you out there working on your PhDs, a really handy area to focus on in your early research is one that, and you know, obviously no one else has done anything, but like no one, no one, no one else has done anything because there weren't really no post-Keynesian approaches to exchange rate determination. And it's the largest market on the planet mm. and nobody had done anything. So it was a really, really... Uh, you know, easy area to step into and say, I'm the leading scholar on exchange rate literature because I'm the only one. Uh, and so, so that, that worked out nicely for me that I happen to be interested in that. But yeah, I'm a little disappointed, but I'm doing another edition. 
when I get the business cycles book done that I'm working on right now, my next goal is the uh, a new edition. Well, in fact, Routledge said, why don't you just do a new book? I said, okay, I'll do a new book um, on exchange rates. Wow. Okay. So, so you're suggesting to PhD students is exchange rate determination, like developing, you know, reality of that. Yeah. There's not a lot done still. Yeah. Mm. Um, all right. So my other minor follow-up question regarding your, your chairmanship uh, is, uh, you know, you're, you're among the people that kind of challenge mainstream, you know, so as a post-Kensium, as a, as a not mainstream person, does that have any impact on chairmanship? You know what I mean? Like why, well, why would, why would, you know, choosing someone that is against those that is against the dominant school of thought. Is there any relationship to that as far as becoming? Yeah, well, there is a yeah. There there are some important issues there. Um, one is that um, you know I I won the department chair election, but I was also the only one who ran. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, and I did insist, by the way. I, I think you know because that's generally how it happens you know because generally what happens is hey i'll do it okay well we still have to have an election because we still need to report to the dean that somebody was elected but i I still thought it was important to lay out a a um, platform for everybody uh, which i did and and i focused on the fact that the chair is in charge of process right i have to make sure that everyone feels as if they had a chance to participate and so forth but going back to the post-keynesian thing most of our department is mainstream now as the older people have retired and they were all institutionalists from University of Texas and University of Oklahoma, the people that were there when I first got there. And so neoclassicism was absolutely uh, in the minority. Now it's the opposite. It's me, Don Elliott, Rob Garnett is coming back to our department. Thank goodness. He had been uh, the, the, the trader uh, who went to UMass and had done some really, really great stuff. He went off to be a uh, administrator in the honors college he's coming back all right so we, we've got another you know post keynes institutionalist type person back in the department our former associate dean is coming back in and he's he's not necessarily not mainstream but he's very open to the idea that students should hear more than one perspective so you know i i, I wasn't going to mention this earlier but but since you brought it up one of the reasons i wanted to be chair was to make sure that that didn't go away that that that, that non-mainstream you know we have that contending perspectives in economics course that is a foundational course in our major. You cannot be an econ major at TCU without taking that class. And I didn't want to see somebody say, why, why is that in the core? Why do we need that class? I wanted to make sure that I was in a position to make sure that that never happened. In fact, uh, part of my agenda was to make sure that that class was so deeply ingrained in our curriculum that it would be difficult to get rid of it. Mm. Um, you you that, mentioned that in one of our previous interviews, that you, that you were kind of... you. We're worried about that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I became chair was to make sure that it didn't happen, that the, that the class where students must be exposed to different schools of thought didn't end up being, yeah, oh, that should just be an elective. And so I made it the prerequisite for several other classes. I could have done this not as chair, but it, and, and, I, and I talked it up to administrators. You know, the, the DEI stuff, the diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff, the American Economics Association has a web page on diversity and says, well, here's the two things you should do curricularly, which is a hard word to say. Um, <laughs> one is to have a class on different schools of thought. Ha ha. Uh, and the other one is to have a class on race and gender. Ha ha. We've got both of them now. Mm-hmm. And so I talked this up to where uh, later, if the department were to say, well, why have we got that required? I said, well, you know, geez, uh, I've been talking it up to everybody uh, at the higher level and we'll attract resources to the department because of that. And it's not optional. You can imagine if we have classes. Well, if we have classes on race and gender that are optional, well, then 
only the people who are already sympathetic will take them. We mm. want everyone to take them. We want mm. everyone to be exposed to different ideas. So anyway, uh, that that's where where me not being a mainstream economist came in was me trying to make sure that that, that the sort of non-mainstream part of our major stayed there. And I, I'm sure I said last time I talked about this that we do a um, senior survey every you know every semester for all the graduates, and the number one thing that comes out what was the top strength of our department is first always our professors, which is really nice because we have a lot of really um, the neoclassicals as well are, are very good teachers and, and they enjoy teaching. But number two is that they learned about different schools of thought. So you're going to get rid of a class that people say was, you know, the strength of our department. So hmm. that's, that's great. Uh, yeah, that, that, I that's mean, why I, I don't regret being chair. Honestly, it reminds me a little bit of Roe versus Wade. It's like, you know, we had Roe versus Wade, whatever, 50 years. I don't know what it was. And it's yeah. like, you know, people kind of got comfortable. But uh-huh. it's a continuous fight, and that's what right. you're doing. You like you have to you have to if you want these things, and you have to. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so so you know we have we have a lot to talk about, but before yeah. we get into my questions, I want to ask you a question from one of my patrons. Yes, which is unrelated to the topic that we're going to be talking about. But um, so here we go. So this is from a patron, uh, Paul Danderand, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, so his question is: With rate hikes, sanctions, tariffs, and exporting our own oil. Rather than keeping all of it, and Biden's drive to lower the deficit, are we definitely heading towards recession doom with this current silly strategy? I know definitely is a hard word, but wondering if there are other factors that I'm missing that will keep us away from a recession. I think April was a government surplus by a government surplus month by 300 billion plus. Uh, let's yeah. say we maintain a 500 to 600 billion monthly deficit. Will that be enough to stay away from a recession? So, right, right. Um, put that out there, and, and what what are your you know? Yeah, uh, no, and, and of course you had sent me this question ahead of time, and so I actually did some research on it. And one of uh, really interesting data sets that the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis does, you know, if you if you put Fred into your um, uh, Google search, because that's their nickname for their for their data set. Uh, is Fred, and then put in, I guess, contributions to, to GDP, because what you can look up is uh, first quarter 2022, g- overall GDP growth was negative 1.4, right? And then you can look up what were the contributions, individual contributions of consumption, investment, government spending, and trade, all right, uh, imports and exports. And Paul is quite right that you know, and then this is actually first quarter, not second quarter, because, um, you know, April will be in second quarter. But uh, of all those contributions towards growth in GDP, consumption was the biggest plus. Well, apparently we did a lot of consumption. Investment, which is the number I always look at first and foremost as an indicator of which way the economy is going. Um, it was positive. Uh, it, it contributed 0.43 uh, percentage points to GDP growth. Net exports was the huge negative. It was negative 3.2. And apparently we bought a lot of imports and nobody bought much from us. And, uh, you know, that happens when the economy recovers. When the economy recovers, then we tend to buy more of everything. Consumption was really high, but then so were our consum- so was our consumption of foreign goods and services. But let's get back around to government spending, and it was indeed a negative. All right, government spending actually dragged GDP down by 0.48 percentage points. So... And, you know, how big does it have to be? I mean, you know, I don't know, because the problem is, as, as we all know from the MMT approach, is that you're thinking about the government offsetting other, you know, uh, I guess, uh, other potential negatives like trade. 
if, if trade was negative 3.2, that was its contribution towards uh, GDP growth. Well, then government spending needed to be at least positive 3.2 in order to offset the uh, surplus of foreigners. I think of it more, though, in terms of investment and government spending. If investment starts to shrink, you need in government, you need the government spending to go up because they're both injections into the macro economy. And investment is still going up. All right. So, so this is this is where I sort of back off here and look at this. How worried am I about the government not contributing sufficiently to economic growth right now via deficits? Um, it, it is worrisome. Investment is still growing. And I should I should back up and say this before every recession since World War Two, investment spending has either had negative rates of growth in the last year so that investment spending and by the way investment spending means physical investment it means <laughs> it means uh, not, not, not financial yeah. yeah building you know restaurants and so forth it has declined in the last year of every expansion or at least decelerated in the last year of every expansion well it's decelerating right now all right so mm. i say well unemployment's really low yeah it always is right before the recession that's the lowest mm. point to get gets is right before the recession so, yeah, it's particularly important right now for them not to be pushing surpluses because investment seems to be sort of, you know, uh, petering out. Now, how big? I don't know, uh, because it depends a lot on, you know, if investment were to recover, well, then we can sustain uh, a government surplus and still still grow. But, you know, that was the, the big thing in Obama's expansion was that once we got past the, the big fiscal stimulus, the government consistently contributed negatively to GDP growth because they were trying to balance, you know, not outright balance the budget, but reduce the deficit at any rate. Uh, and so Trump outdoes him by spending more money uh, through the government sector. If only there were an economic school of thought that talks about this, but anyway. <laughs> but yes, I think Paul is right to be concerned. Uh, I don't know how big, but yeah, I would keep an eye on investment figures and uh, government spending. Got it. Okay, so so next question, and this is the final question that's really kind of not in our main topic. Um, yeah. Okay, so I don't want to spend much time on this, but I'm really I am curious of your views of the Ukrainian Russian conflict only so far as it concerns exchange rates, and and specifically, there's an idea that I keep hearing in the media, which is that other countries can can do something to hurt the Russian economy or hurt. The ruble, whatever they mean by that. And my understanding is that other countries can only isolate Russia. So they can, you know, obviously can affect the exchange rate, but that can only hurt Russia if they have to import stuff. And have to import stuff means that they don't have domestic, I mean, you know, as best as I can understand, they don't yeah. have domestically what they need to feed their people to, to, provision their people, their populace in real terms, themselves and their populace in real terms, and to prosecute the war. So if they can do those two things, then they don't really need to import. And of course, they'll sacrifice those at the bottom, but you know, right. that, that's, you know, they'll always do that. But so if they don't need to import, then there's nothing that can hurt them. Um, uh, so yeah, if they need to import yeah. to survive, then that isolation can hurt. Um, so, so that's the main question. And I, you know, as a wargaming person, I'm, I'm yeah, I am. I'm curious if you're yeah. following it just from a wargaming perspective. But yeah. but the larger question is that that exchange rate thing and about hurting so-called hurting the Russian economy. No, I think that's basically right. I mean, obviously, if uh, let's say that Russia has never traded with anyone other than say exporting things, then no, it, you know, uh, 
it's not going to hurt them at all. But, uh, you know, when, when they had the Asian financial crisis in 97 and a massive collapse uh, of, the, of the Thai currency, that they imported a lot of rice. And so this absolutely, you know, talking about hurting the, the, the poorest people, this was killing them. I mean, they said that the absolute number of people in poverty in Asia skyrocketed because of their currency depreciations for those countries that, that you know, desperately needed to import oil and import food. So I think that's right. And, you know, that, that yeah, if they, if they don't need to import the stuff, then they don't really care. Uh, they might care from a long-term perspective, but not right now. And, yeah, I am following it somewhat from a wargaming perspective. And, and um, so, so I, I also do miniatures wargaming with little 1 285th scale tanks, which will fit on top of like a maybe a penny or a nickel. Um, oh. Yeah, and I, I print the – some I've bought – and some I've 3D printed because I bought a 3D printer during COVID uh, for something fun to do. And so so I've got lots of, of – of, uh, I, I tend to do either World War II or the World War III that never happened. And I've written my own rules. Uh, I really, really like my rules, I have to say. I, I've, I've designed many games before, and some of them really suck. Um, but my, my miniatures armored combat rules are pretty darn good. And I have so – I, so I did my World War II rules, right? And I was really happy with him, but it wasn't enough. I should have stopped there. I thought, well, let me do modern combat too, you know, from, from 19, you know, end of the World War II to now. Well, first of all, that's a massive period. World War II, we're talking maybe six years, but now I'm talking 60 years. And so the change in armored combat over that, that period is, is tremendous, going back and forth between uh, who has the upper hand, the anti-tank weapons or the, or, or the tanks themselves. And having said all that, one of the things I had to do was figure out, uh, you know, uh, the sort of infantry anti-tank weapons and i can't remember the name of the one i could look up my own rules here uh i can't remember the name of the one they keep talking about in the situation right now but the 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 way that's made it so easy to knock out i started to say soviet good lord i grew up during the cold war um russian armor is this anti-tank weapon that hits the top of the tank uh, it doesn't hit the side of the tank where the armor is, you know, relative, or the front, which is where it's thickest, or, or the side where it's, you know, relatively thick. It attacks it right on top, and there's several new weapons. And so I, I have all this in my rules. I have, I, you know, I try to figure out, okay, well, my gosh, this this one's going to penetrate every time it hits. Uh, you know, if it's going to do that, that's exactly what's been happening. So I, I found that horrific but interesting. <laughs> and you know I'm a member of a number of Facebook groups that are about war gaming and and so yeah people have uh, have, have uh, put stuff up there and kind of uh, you know talked about the the situation so I haven't done anything well, I haven't had time but I haven't done anything to like you know sort of set up a scenario or something like that but I have been paying attention um, and it's been very interesting how much more effective the uh, anti-tank guided missiles are today compared to you know 10 years ago hmm and this one that, that, that attacks from the top um, is, is very effective. It, no tank has enough armor on the top to, to stop that. That's where uh, they stick their heads out, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Ooh, javelin, javelin, that's it. Because I have an asterisk next to it in my rules, which says that it, which means that it is a um, top attack capable. So, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, forgive me. Uh, I was just informed that our lawnmower ran out of gas. I oh, need to oh, just go right ahead. Please, I will fill it and be right back. Yeah, while right. you're doing that, I'll refill my water glass. Yeah, so just like likely five minutes. Yeah, Sorry. Okay. Thank right. you. Right. Hello? Welcome back. Hey, sorry about that. Thank you. Certainly one of the costs of having a big yard. Yes, and uh, 
my boys have informed me how much they despise me. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it's not a hundred degrees. It was Melanie had a, um, which is why she's still asleep. Uh, big field trip to drive down to Austin with all her students. Uh, and it was 99 degrees in Austin yesterday. Uh, it's going to so. be 90. It said it was, I, as of yesterday, it was going to be 98 later today. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's why I had to, I woke, him up, I woke him up early, which for yeah. my older one is especially unpleasant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, we're thinking of moving to Ireland. And so I, because of the heat here now, I asked, uh, I, I checked the weather in Dublin. It was a high of 60 yesterday. Mm. Yeah. That, that, that sounds better. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So all the questions forward going forward are circling around your 2021 paper, which I thought was a 2022 paper. <laughs> it is 2022, isn't it? No. It's not, you, it's not even was, published yet. Right. Well, it's going to be part of the Gims book, right? Right, right. That's why oh, you wrote well, it. I see what you're saying. I wrote it in 2021, but yeah, it's a 2022 publication. Right. I wrote yeah. you thinking that you had just published this when it was actually a year old. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So Modern Monetary Theory, the United Kingdom and the Pound Sterling, which is going to be a chapter in a Gims, in an upcoming Gims book, uh, Gower Initiative book. Yeah. Um, so I have a bunch of questions that circle around it, uh, but some are questions and some are, are just concepts I'm going to say as best as I can, and then you'll correct them. So yeah. here's the first one. So the first one is demand pull inflation. So demand pull inflation is when prices increase purely because of an increase in demand. And as I understand it, it's a uncommon form of inflation. And by definition, demand pull implies that supply and production may still have capacity. It's not at its limit necessarily. So demand pull means that demand is above <laughs> what we're expecting, but that doesn't mean that supply couldn't be increased. So that means that mm. that increased demand should be taken as a signal to businesses to do something differently, maybe increase production to meet that demand uh, being the obvious choice. So, but this is often responded to by decreasing demand. And that makes me think of an analogy, which is, you know, people are hungry. And we have a kitchen and it has the ability to make food for everybody. But instead of making food for everybody, we'll just lock some of them out. But but we but then we'll turn around and say, this kitchen feeds everybody who enters. So and it also reminds me of something that you told me in our first interview, which is that stopping uh, rough something like stopping slavery is bad for the economy because it raises the price of cotton. And 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 it's actually was a a question a, a, very close to a question on my 12 year old social studies test. Yeah. Which I was kind of like, I was like, yeah, who's the economy, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and if so, I may interject in case listeners right now are thinking, my God, that Harvey's a bastard. It was, <laughs> it was meant to make a point, you know, that we don't do th as, and I know you're about to say this, but I just want to make sure nobody's writing an email to me right now <laughs> that, um, I'm editing this out. Yeah, it was saying what you're about to say. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 um, we don't do things, just to stop. Yeah. Well, or there's something to be said for the fact that those who are not being rewarded commensurately, yes, if we paid fast food workers more, then that would cause the price of hamburgers to go up. So what? Why wouldn't mm -hmm. you let firms pay workers more money? Now, could that be inflationary? Yeah, it could, but I don't care. I mean, my story is always this, that the Emancipation Proclamation made cotton more expensive. But that wasn't the point. 
just mm. because you make something more expensive isn't a bad thing. That if we are talking about rewarding people fairly, then part of that is going to be inflationary. If we pay people more to sell hamburgers, to, to make hamburgers, then yes, it is quite possible that hamburgers become more expensive. And so what? That's okay. Because, you know, th that's the way it's supposed to be working. So, and I know why MMT people generally sort of shy away from, from saying that it could possibly be inflationary. Uh, and, and I understand some of the arguments and don't disagree with them totally, but I also just don't care. Because if it turns out that by creating a jobs program and full employment causes the wages of the poorest Americans to go up and therefore causes uh, those of us that are, are lucky enough to not be in that sector to have to pay more for getting our yard cut, to have to pay more for getting our hair cut, so what? That's okay. That's what a civilized society is about. You know that. Uh, yes, the Emancipation Proclamation made uh, cotton more expensive. Yeah, that's okay though. <laughs> because, yeah. Right. Exactly. It's it's it is taking prices, the price of cotton, to be the only thing that matters, as if it's the entire puzzle. When in reality, it's one piece of a lot of pieces. So, like, yeah, the price of cotton went up, but we're not treating people terribly anymore. You know, they're, they're, it's a huge, it's right. one small piece of a very large picture. That was inelegantly said, but but I think yeah. it's clear. So, and it also implies that the concern is only with prices for certain people. So the price of cotton for not, you know, right. who cares about the price of cotton for slaves? We care right. about the price of cotton for those who, you know, slave owners, basically. Right. So as in one of your articles, uh, actually your uh, last year's article, Four Reasons to Stop Panicking Over Inflation in Forbes, um, you talk about how inflation is a redistribution of, I don't exactly know how you say it, but a redistribution yeah. of financial burdens, which they're therefore causes real world burdens. So in the case of cotton, it's from if we you know stop slavery, which increases the price of cotton, that redistributes burdens from slaves and those who support the interests of slaves to slave owners. Right. So yeah, all right, that's good enough. And then uh, so it's like the term inflation overall has been overly simplified to mean only demand pull. And that, therefore, the only solution to all kinds of inflations is to blindly reduce demand, which is, you know, increasing interest right. rates is doing that. So, so that was kind of all over the place. But can you can you elaborate on that and correct if there's anything that needs to be corrected? Yeah, no, you know, I'm I'm working on the thing I'm working on right now uh, is a book on business cycles, and so most of what I've written so far, you would think, would be just things about uh, you, you know different variables that increase or decrease as an expansion goes on and so forth. But I had to spend a long time. In fact, I made poor Melanie read it for me to figure out if it was sounding okay to explain inflation because it is so poorly understood by the general public and by economists that I felt like I needed an extensive section in a book that's really on business cycles to explain inflation. And, and, and you know, the reason there's a connection at all is because the neoclassicals, uh, as you just said, uh, those in power, when the economy is expanding like it is right now, well, unemployment's really low. Oh, no, workers might start bidding up the price of labor. We need to throw the economy into a recession. So, uh, oh, no, they might bid up the price of labor and cause inflation. And so when they think inflation is going to happen, they intentionally cause a recession. So I, I felt like, well, and, and neoclassicals say this is, there are some neoclassicals who say that's the only reason for the business cycle. 
that, well, what happens is the government causes a recession. Uh, there is no underlying instability in the economy. It's just that, you know, either something bad like COVID happens uh, or, or, you know, the invasion of, of Ukraine uh, or the government intentionally does this. So I, well, I got somebody reading this book who's been trained mainstream is going to be thinking, well, yeah, but that's that's important to stop inflation. So I've been thinking about this a lot and I've written out this this. I had to come up with a, a with a sort of. Um, mini economy with inputs and so forth, try to keep it as simple as possible to make the point that it's about redistribution of income, all right? Uh, that, and, and let's let's take a couple of examples that might be easier to think about. First of all, you know, of course, demand pull is not the only kind of inflation that there is. The, the, the kind where costs are going up as, as resulted from um, COVID obviously can't possibly be addressed by throwing the economy into recession. Right. So when we had the uh, supply chain issues that we continue to have right now, uh, which, for example, has meant that we have uh, had difficulty getting hold of of computer chips and so forth. Uh, My computer, I'm a big computer gamer. And so my computer died last July. And I thought, oh, no, of all the terrible times for it to die, I'm going to be paying through the nose for a new because I'm on a decent video card. Mm -hmm. And so my new computer cost over twice as much as the previous one, just mm. because, just because of that. So, mm. so we all know where that's coming from, right? I mean, and, and, and so, Hey, let's call it now. So that contributes to quote unquote inflation. And maybe I should start there. Quote unquote inflation. That's just the change in the consumer price index, which is a weighted average of all prices that we pay attention to. What they do is they do surveys to decide what do people buy in a, in a given you know, month. Uh, this much gas, uh, th- this much you know, grocery store food, and then they reprice those things uh, in various locations every month, and then do their weighted average. And so it's the weighted average going up that we call inflation, the weighted average. But that doesn't mean everything was going up. Some stuff might have been going down. Some stuff might have been going up a whole lot. Some some going up just a little bit. Uh, anyone who's been paying attention to this for the last couple of years will know that used car prices were were massively increased and they played a big role in that inflation number, right? So, well, if I'm not buying a new car, it's not affecting me at all. Now, how do we stop that kind of inflation? Well, the only way to stop it is to find some way to get over the supply chain issues. Throwing the economy into recession technically would lower inflation because if we can't afford to buy used cars anymore, then yes, the prices will go down. But that ignores, it's kind of like saying, uh, I have a terrible fever because I have an infection. Uh, well, let's just cool that fever off and everything will be fine. No, mm. I've still got the infection. And so the inflation is a symptom of another thing going on in the macro economy. And I'm leaving demand pull for a moment uh, and I'll come back to it in a minute because I, I want to talk about the situations where, well, yeah, yes, clearly it's costing all of us. Now, Having said that, those people who sell those few computer chips we've got might be doing okay right now because they've been able to sell them for so much. So there's still going to be a redistribution of income. Um, During the OPEC oil embargo, this was, of course, entirely political. And did it make everyone in the world worse off? No, it made people who were net importers and users of oil worse off. And it made net exporters and people in the oil industry better off. Right. So the in a sense, the planet was worse off on average because there was less oil, but that didn't mean that everyone suffered. The The demand for oil was such that it didn't fall that much, uh, and so they were able to charge really high prices. And again, you know what we did then, by the way? 
Uh, we caused the worst recession since the Great Depression to try to address the inflation caused by the OPEC oil embargo. That, that was Volcker? the Volcker. Are you referring to Volcker? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Volcker recession. And so, as you said earlier, we act like every kind of inflation is demand pull. So, so I guess my first point here is, and, and what I try to argue in, in, in that chapter in the book, is that um, the kinds of inflation that really do tend to be a net cost to us, even though there may be some people who end up better off, like with OPEC, are not addressable by causing a recession. Right, so that there, there's that doesn't help. Doesn't, when you say it, causing a recession, I think you mean deliberately. Well, a large part of that anyway is to deliberately kick people out of work, right? No, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, I got did I get an email? I can't remember now. Somebody commented on my recent Ford po- post. Oh, it was on Twitter, and it was George Selgin, uh, who's oh, a really geez. nice man. Yeah, a really nice man person, yeah. but mm-hmm. um, yeah, he, he's an Austrian. And he says, well, what Harvey doesn't, and I didn't respond to it because I don't have the energy anymore. I used to respond to everything, <laughs> and I just don't now. But I thought, well, should I? Uh, they said, well, Harvey's problem here is that they're not trying to uh, reduce income, just reduce spending. Okay, George, how are they trying to reduce spending? <laughs> income, all right? So anyway, but I, I decided not to respond. But so – yeah. Well, let, let's not let's let's not let it go that he is a director emeritus at Cato Institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I saw him present one time a paper uh, alongside Randy Ray, and I will never forget it. Uh, I use this as an example in class. Now, first of all, I admire George for coming into the lion's den because it was an institutionalist uh, session, and he had been invited, and he and Randy both were talking about the history of money. And I've used this in class many times to explain to students you know, the differences of, of approaches in different schools of thought. And sorry, I'm going off the, the topic a little bit here, but, but it was just such a great example of the difference between post-Keynesian versus you know, Austrian and neoclassical economics. So what George Selgin did to explain the origin of money was to reverse engineer money. Well, let's see. What does money do for us? It does this, this, and this. Okay, we must have had problems with this, this, and this, and that's why we made up money. Randy is citing historical research. Right. Well, in Germany in the 12th century, they did this. In, in, you know, in France in the 14th century, they did this. Mm-hmm. And um, so Randy is trying to build the case from the historical record. And, right. and Randy is really laying into him. It was very interesting. Um, and, uh, <laughs> actually, actually I, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, then George was like, yeah, but people can lie in history or be biased in history or something to that yeah, effect. That's, that's correct. That's correct. That, that, and and, then, and, that, and that's then, true. That's true. And then, yeah, so and then so okay so yeah they could lie and be biased writing down historical documents. I would think that they could also be biased in in the the method that he's doing and George is doing as well. Precisely, the, the reverse engineering, honestly, in my mind, leaves more room of course. for inputting your own biases than trying to find a historical record. Uh, and I tell students, you know, well, from from that school of thought, from from George's schools of thought perspective, that the issue. It, 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 well, it goes back to the Friedman stuff. It doesn't matter how realistic your assumptions are as long as it predicts well. They're perfectly comfortable basing their arguments on um, intuition rather than you know, historical evidence. We're not. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so anyway, that, but go, so going back to, to, to inflation. So the, the first point I want to try to make clearly is that non-demand pull inflation 
can be harmful. All right, not to everyone. It's still going to be, but, but it's, it, it can be a net cost. All right, uh, the, the, uh, let's say the OPEC. It implies that something is outside of human control. Yeah, uh, or, or at least in the short run. In the mm-hmm. short run, we can't do anything about it. And causing a recession, a will technically lower inflation because it will lower average prices, but it ain't solved anything. It's made mm-hmm. things worse. Not mm-hmm. only are the price, not not only are the, is the price of oil higher in 1974 than it was in 73, but now I got less income. All right, so so that's stupid. We don't try to cause a recession. Now, so let's go back to demand pull inflation then, which is what you originally were talking about. And that is if demand is rising so high that the supply can't keep up, at least not in the short run, so what? That's a great problem to have. You know, I, 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 six models have asked me out for a date this weekend, and I can only go out with one of them. Uh, yeah, that, that's a real problem there, bub. And so <laughs> I think you can probably figure that out. So why would we want to – and, of course, it goes back to the neoclassical view that the economy fixes itself. Why would we want to cause a recession? And as you pointed out, demand pull inflation creates appropriate – this is one of the few times the market does something useful, all right? It creates appropriate signals to entrepreneurs because mm. all prices don't go up everywhere. It's going to be in certain sectors. Like let's say there's a housing boom and the price of bricks goes up. So we cause a recession to stop it because that would stop it. Uh, it would stop the average price. It, the bricks would still be higher than they were before. All right. But it would, it would lower the average prices. Or we could do this instead. Let the price of bricks go up and signal to the market that people want more bricks and then it would be more profitable, and so entrepreneurs would make more bricks. That's what they wanted. This, uh, w- when we started with COVID, do you remember how hard it was to get? Well, you probably weren't three D printing at the time. Uh, I needed alcohol to clean the stuff for the three D printing, and you couldn't find it. Uh, or if you did, it was at you know exorbitant prices because at mm. that point we thought maybe uh, COVID could be spread you know from surfaces. That'd be a good. Uh, there's there's so, a drinking joke somewhere in there. Oh well, and we get right to that. Um, <laughs> You know, and that's funny you should bring that up. Uh, early on in COVID, we were trying to have some happy hours on Zoom.
Today's the first in a six-part series with Texas Christian University economics professor and cowboy economist John Harvey. The first three parts are hosted by me, the final three by MMT researcher, Texas lawyer, and my previous guest, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan and John talk about how MMT can apply to nations outside the U.S., using Russia as an example. They also talk about some of the core theoretical and ideological differences between MMTers and mainstream economists, focusing on a recent critique of MMT by Drew Metz and Feister. You can hear my own interview with Jonathan in episodes 106 and 107. Regarding parts 1 to 3, John and I talk about his chapter in the upcoming book called Modern Monetary Theory, Key Insights Leading Thinkers. The book will be published by the UK-based Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. It's edited by L. Randall Ray and GIMS and is scheduled for a January 2023 release. John is one of 15 authors. His chapter is titled Modern Monetary Theory, the UK, and Pound Sterling. He was asked to write this chapter for two major reasons. First, because there's not enough MMT-specific analysis on exchange rate determination, and second, to address the reality of the so-called sterling crisis in the United Kingdom. John and I don't specifically discuss the latter topic, but it is addressed in the paper. John's chapter addresses the following criticism of MMT, and this is a quote from the chapter. MMT-inspired policies will cause high rates of price inflation, which will in turn lower the international value of a domestic currency, perhaps catastrophically. Importantly, the critique is based on the following three assumptions. Number one, the false idea that we are already or soon will be at full employment. Number two, a fantastical theory of exchange rate determination. And number three, a terrible and lazy mischaracterization of MMT. John and I spend most of our time discussing the reality of these three assumptions. Surprisingly, however, the main insight I take from this conversation is a much clearer understanding of inflation in general. I'll describe that insight in the introduction to part two. The heart of our conversation is on the above three assumptions, but we start and end with mostly unrelated subjects. Part one begins with John describing his experience as chair of the economics department at TCU. He discusses the Russian-Ukrainian conflict only as it relates to exchange rate determination, and he answers a question from an activist MMT patron regarding his opinion of our possibility to experience a recession. At the end of part three, we talk about how for most of those that most of us directly interact with, mainstream economic theory is not, in fact, a big conspiracy. We end by discussing the good and bad of math in economics. Thanks to the recommendation of a patron, with every episode of Activist MMT as of several months ago, you can pinpoint any part of this interview by referring to the full list of audio chapters, which can be found at the bottom of the show notes. So, for example, if you wanted to skip over this introduction and go right to the beginning of the interview proper, now you can know exactly what timestamp to go to. Don't worry, I won't mind. And now, on to my conversation with John Harvey. Enjoy. <laughs> 